Hi, in this episode, we get to talk to Penguin about Gradio, AI, and what he does at work. But before that, here's a word from our sponsor. Enjoy. Vercel is the platform for front-end developers, providing the speed and reliability innovators need to create at the moment of inspiration. Founded by the creators of Next.js, Vercel has zero configuration support for 35-plus front-end frameworks, including SvelteKit. We enable the world's largest brands like Under Armour, eBay, and Nintendo to iterate faster and create quality software. Try out Vercel today to experience the easiest way to use Svelte. Hello, welcome back to Svelte Radio. This time, we're very calm and happy. No, we're always happy at Svelte Radio. Welcome. <laughs> welcome. We're here. We're back again. And we have a guest this time. Say hello. Hello. Hey. We're not going to introduce. <laughs> yeah, I might need some names here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. But he, he's so well known in the Svelte community. His name That's is a like a pen penguin emoji. Yeah. Yeah. There's a penguin showing up everywhere. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, welcome to another episode. <laughs> that was a very long, weird intro, but we're here. <laughs> and we have all of the hosts this time around. Say hello, yes. maybe. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Hey. Okay. I don't know if we want to do like, you know, this like <laughs> names and voices because this is like five people. Um, but hi, yeah. I'm Sean. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anthony. Hi, I'm oh. Brittany. I'm Kevin. And then our guest, Mr. Penguin, or maybe not Mr. Well, what's the what's the title there? Whatever. Whatever. Overlord. <laughs> Overlord. <laughs> Overlord Penguin. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. We just went it's for like, it. So, uh, Penguin, you're uh, you're the creator of MD Svex. Right, mm -hmm. it's this small true. little thing that we've we've all used a bit, and uh, you've been around uh, in the Svelte community for for a good while. Uh, maybe maybe you can introduce yourself. Yeah, I am a penguin on the internet. I've been involved in Svelte for I don't even know how many years, like four four years or something, five years. Um, I created MD Svex. I work at Hugging Face on, on Gradio, and I'm here to talk about whatever anybody wants to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we thought we would talk about uh, Gradio and AI and I guess Hugging Face in general and, and why, why you use Svelte, what, what Gradio is, and, and all that good, fun stuff. So, but bef yeah, yeah, all this interesting stuff. But yeah, so uh, Penguin, you've uh, you've uh, done a bunch of talks uh, that are pretty worthwhile to watch. One about building your own REPL, which is uh, mind blowing to me. And uh, recently at Svelte Summit, you also did a, a talk on, uh, yeah, what was it about? It was it was a talk without slides on storytelling, right? On yeah. storytelling, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought it was a nice breath of relief from like the tech technical talks, like just to have something that was more about just how to have a good talk and a good story. Yeah. 
it was a it was a, a lie. I think uh, I was just after Sean, so it was kind of the strange meta talks section of uh, of the conference. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I felt like doing something a little bit different. I think um, it can be difficult to do non technical talks at a technical conference, depending like who you are. And I think that you know sometimes. You know, I thought it was an important talk, you know, the way we kind of tell stories and encouraging people to to tell their stories. But it, it can be, you know, if, a, if a, a stranger to the community gets up and does a non-technical talk, everyone's like, why is this person not talking about Svelte? What has this got to do with, uh, what has this got to do with kind of tech and with Svelte at a Svelte conference? So it's kind of, there's an element of, I was in a position where I could do a talk like that and I felt it was important and I felt I should kind of, you know, use that platform, like, because, you know, you say I'm pretty well known in the Svelte community. So no one's going to like question like whether or not I should be on stage kind of speaking. So it kind of gets that out of the way just because of, not that that's correct, of course, that's a bit of a, you know, that's a whole discussion in itself. But um, the boo yeah, something a bit different. The boo, the boo, the boo crew's not going to boo you off the stage. No, no I, I was the boo crew. Did you did you not feel that you might disappoint people uh, by not following on from your previous Bristech type talk uh, that's heavily technical? Yeah. So what, one of the reasons I wanted to do it was because of the expectations that I knew there would be. I knew like I've got a bit of a track record of doing pretty deep technical kind of, you know, dives into topics or kind of live coding things. And, and I love doing those, those things, but part of it was kind of, it's our first in-person conference. It would be nice to do, it was the kind of talk that does well when you've got an audience in front of you, you've got kind of people that you can kind of talk to. It kind of felt more intimate because of, you know, it was a nice, nice, nice size kind of group and stuff. But yeah, part of it was actually, People are going to be expecting this, so I'd like to kind of uh, mess with those expectations. <clears throat> I think that was part of the, it helped with the impact to a degree. But I was definitely nervous about the talk. It's a risky talk. I'd kind of joked to Rich. Um, I met Rich in New York uh, a couple of months ago, and I kind of joked to Rich that the most kind of radical thing you can do in a in a tech talk is be sincere. And so I was kind of like, and, and, and there was an element of, I'm, if I'm going to go on stage and ask people to kind of to tell their story and to kind of to be honest and to kind of take risks in that way, then I have to do the same myself. So it was there was a kind of an element of kind of, I don't know, kind of following my own advice on, you know, if there's something you actually want to talk about, you something that you feel is important, then you should kind of talk about it uh, using whatever platforms you have. So it was quite a, you know, in some ways it's a kind of like it, it echoes some of my reasons for being involved in open source and in, involved in tech in the first place. Uh, so as someone who does talks and as someone who watches a lot of talks, uh, I just wanted to compliment you. Like that was one of the bravest and also it's very raw and like definitely ex expectation breaking uh, talks I've ever seen. So well done on, on that. <laughs> I, think, I think everyone was somewhat dubious. Uh, like everyone's like staring at the black screens, like expecting some slides to show up at any point. And you just kept not delivering on that. <laughs> I, I thought at the end it was like, it w the name of the talk was, I told you my dog wouldn't walk or something like that. And then I expected like at the end there to be some like big thing about like the dog not walking. <laughs> No, that was more, <laughs> of a, more of a red herring, the, the title. Uh, clickbait. Yeah. Just clickbait. 
say it's how to, how to fill a room. I'm going to do a talk <laughs> called How to Fill a Room, and it's all about the title of Penguin's Talks. <laughs> I, I have a I have a sense that you are one of the more uh, you're one of the people that think uh, about code in a more holistic fashion. Like even though you're very technical. You know, you're, you're on the Svelte core team, plus you maintain MD specs, and I, I don't know what else. Um, you, you definitely view it as like code plus humans. Um, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on like how community and code intermix. Yeah. You yeah, seem to care quite a bit. Yeah, I, I do. And I don't, like, I just view technology as a kind of a, as a means to an end, really. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a great enabler i'm very conflicted for example on you know i often joke that the internet was a mistake um half joke and it's it's you know it's 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 true you know it's quite it's you know exacerbated a lot of the existing kind of um injustices and prejudices it's kind of amplified some of those it's but in other ways it's kind of access to information if you look at things like i don't know as a kind of very popular example something like khan academy you know making a high quality education available to a huge amount of people worldwide and has been kind of really successful in uh, democratizing in the true sense, not in the um, investor sense, um, education. And I think that like, was when, so when I first got involved in Svelte, I was mostly focusing on community. That's kind of how I got my start. So there was 30 people in the Discord and people like Rich and Conduitry were really generous in terms of kind of helping me understand this is back kind of Svelte two time, you know, now we have what 45,000 members on discord and yeah. obviously no one person can, <laughs> uh, can manage that. But, you know, I found it very rewarding kind of helping people out and stuff. But I think what's more interesting is when, you know, maybe someone that you've helped and then someone that that person has helped this kind of chain of helpers goes on to build something incredible or, or something impactful. And I don't think tools can be successful without a strong community. I don't think without the, the the people to build the things, to write the content, to you know present you know new new kinds of I don't know whether it's tutorials or documentation, whether it's kind of novel uses of a technology. I think those things kind of prove out a technology, but they also kind of um, I don't know they communicate to others the possibilities of a specific tool or a set of tools and so on and so forth. And Svelte has very much been successful because of you know the community the tech honestly hasn't changed that much like we've seen huge growth over the past probably over the past kind of 12 18 months since svelte 3 or you know a little bit after the launch of svelte 3 and the svelte hasn't changed there's more hype there's more yeah. people building there's more people doing interesting things and it is because of that community and one of the things that sets maybe the svelte community apart is it's you know it's very friendly it's very kind of very welcoming to people, but it's also the people are very engaged. I get this feedback a lot that people like the Svelte community, not because, not just because it's welcoming. There are other welcoming kind of tech communities out there. There are other knowledgeable tech communities out there, but because people are still willing to kind of engage in conversation and try hard to keep it kind of civil and friendly and welcoming and help like newcomers and experienced people alike. And that that kind of that dynamic is, in my experience, re relatively unique to keep that that kind of almost small community feel as a community grows, you know, exponentially, like it's grown like enormously in the past couple of years, where at first the growth was slow. Um, but it is this this idea of ecosystem, this idea of 
um, Svelte as an ecosystem instead of Svelte as a as a library. You know, it's something that we're thinking about at work. How do you go from library and a couple of integrations to to ecosystem? And when you start thinking in terms of ecosystem, you know that that phrase specifically. You know, when you think of ecology, it's about you know our relationship to you know to, to various things, and it's the the humans are at the center of that. It's like what is our relationship? How do all of these things to relate together? And getting the most out of your community. And, you know, almost empowering your community to, to do the work is, you know, to, to build the interesting things, to find those new use cases, to find those new applications is, for me, the difference between a success and a, and a failure. There are, there are many open source libraries that have existed for eons and they've got no usage, you know. Playing devil's advocate here, do you think that there is some element of the community being very friendly and welcoming and helpful because nobody's being forced to use Svelte for their job yet. There's no disgruntled React developer that's been forced to use Svelte that's come, turned up to the to the Discord with a chip on their shoulder and gone, you know what, I hate this framework, I hate these people, I don't I want to use React, but my job demands it, therefore I'm just going to abuse you all until I get what I want. Is there a notion of maybe we're still a, a bit lucky in that respect? Absolutely. You know, you have the when you're not forced to use something for work, when it's all personal project, you have the, you know, the, the liberty of choice. If you're working with a tool, you know, you don't have that choice. And as soon as you take choice away from someone, you know, they feel trapped. And I think we'll see that in satisfaction surveys, you know, being pragmatic. It's like, you know, we celebrate these, these kind of satisfaction surveys and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's because people are going to be happy with the tool that they've chosen to use for a pet project that may only have existed for three months when people are forced to <laughs> adopt a legacy spelt, you know, you know, pick up a, a legacy spelt code base and figure out like what on earth the previous developers were thinking for three, four, five years, they're going to be a lot less happy about some of the design decisions. And, you know, you're likely to see questions around, you know, why is this a thing in spelt? You know, who thought two-way bindings were a good idea? You know, those kinds of questions when it gets abused <laughs> in the same way that Pluses. when React patterns get abused, people question the the actual design of the of the feature itself rather than the usage and that's yeah you know totally yeah. valid and we'll see that in the next few years if we're successful that yes. was sean's yes, talk absolutely. from spilt summit he talked about that right <laughs> that was a, lot, a lot of things uh, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna insert a call to action here uh it just so happens that the state of js 2022 survey just started so if you want to voice your dissatisfaction with felt go ahead <laughs> also <laughs> can also in my mention, mention. <laughs> Mention Svelte Radio as the podcast that you're listening to. And mention Svelte Radio, Very please. Write, write it in because they're not going <laughs> to write us in until we force ourselves onto the, the regular list. Exactly. Um, exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, so I call this a second framework syndrome or I, 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 like it's it's a good thing, like in, in a way that like uh, everyone comes here by choice. It's one of the things that uh, I shouted out when I wrote about why I enjoy Svelte. So yeah, I strongly agree. And it, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting that, you know, uh, I think I call back to uh, Sophie Alpert, uh, the former manager of the React core team. You know, she she was she was doing a keynote for React Conf, and she talks a little bit about like, you know, React is the first framework that a lot of people know. You sometimes even before JavaScript, and that in, imposes a huge level of responsibility on React uh, to be accessible to beginners that most libraries do not. Um, and it's not necessarily a good thing, actually. 
<laughs> it's just different. It's just qualitatively different. It, it, it means that everyone who chooses felt chooses it as a second framework, um, and then you, you, the, the community that we get um, is uh, is is uh, is more enjoyable for for some people as as a result. I do think I do think we should celebrate it whilst we you know not say whilst we can, but we we have something to celebrate. We are in that position, so I think we should celebrate it. I definitely don't think that we should go. Oh, well, you know this, that, and the other. So. I think there's a lot of new frameworks and Svelte is still doing really well well comparatively to them. And I appreciate Pete's perspective and how you connect everything back to kind of the underlying ideology of how the community makes the framework a little bit. And I, I love that. I often, um, I often kind of joke that Svelte isn't a, a technology, it's a philosophy. And you see this quite a lot in terms of um, it's frustrating sometimes when people say, where's, you know, where's this library? Where's this integration? But there's this, this, this kind of minimalist kind of approach, this use the bare minimum. If the library's doing too much, then maybe write something simple for yourself. And there's a whole, there is an element of, of, of that side of things as well that it, and, and I think what's interesting actually, uh, Sean talking about the, the kind of uh, attracting beginners is we attract a different kind of beginner because one of the way that Svelte is framed is um, it's very similar to, to just HTML. So people often come like, because it's an easy to use framework, you know, air quotes, we, we do attract people with maybe limited experience. And then when they actually want to start doing more complex stuff, they don't necessarily have the, the kind of like that heavy JavaScript backgrounds to kind of apply to their Svelte. And so we kind of have a, a like a different kind of um, beginner problem, I guess, but it's because of the nature of the framework. And I guess this is how, you know, there's a whole thing around the design of your framework, the philosophy behind your framework will dictate what kinds of users you attract and what kinds of challenges they have when they want to go from, you know, beginner to intermediate to, uh, to advanced. But that, that kind of minimal approach maybe isn't, doesn't work well for those users. They're not as comfortable kind of like writing their own kind of simple libraries as you know, maybe a more experienced developer. Maybe not for this podcast, but I would love to get your thoughts on how to do that transition from beginner to intermediate to advanced and get like a course layout. I would love to do a course <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, nowadays, uh, Svelte is uh, more popular than React, as we've seen on NPM Trends, right? <laughs> so, you just uh, ruined my unpopular <laughs> opinion. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I was saving that. Thank you. Celebrate it. Celebrate yeah. it whilst you can. Celebrate it. Yes. Yeah. So, so for those, so for those of you, wonder. yeah, okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, like, there's someone somewhere is is using some build tool or I don't know some some automation that it's just like downloading Svelte like crazy. So I asked Lori Voss about it. He's the co-founder of NPM. And he said that uh, Theo was right in that tweet that the CI is like messed up. So something somewhere like, is just like the Svelte CI. I, I think Theo said that the in NPM or somebody's CI. Oh, he said some Svelte dev CI. So like you said, like somebody's uh CI is messed up mm. downloading. Yeah. Spell. Yeah. I mean, Svelte's <laughs> a compiler, right? You should, it should see. But, Fewer. Gatsby and Next had similar bumps recently too, so they had like a huge yeah. spike, mm. and then it went back down. It's weird. It's a conspiracy. Strange. Maybe it's one of these unpackaged type tool, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I wanted to mention like we we 
we talked a bit about like we had a a different kind of beginner and i just wanted to shout out the the kit documentation that has a section on web standards which is very nice to see uh it's basically about how how to use fetch form data stream apis and stuff like that which i think a lot of people they they don't know how how to actually use web standards they know like some stuff but yeah so just a shout out i think we could actually yeah, expand um, on on that even more yeah. using the platform <laughs> yes yes um it, you know i think one of the earliest i think that the first felt summit or, or maybe Salt society day we had people from like a few governments, right? Like I think Norway and Mexico that they were putting it in curriculums. So yeah, I, I definitely don't want to give the impression that, uh, you know, non this spell is not suitable for beginners. Actually, it's easier to learn just because, uh, you know, it's closer to HTML, but uh, yeah, there's that's beside the point. You don't have to learn functional programming or uh, some some uh, yeah. fork of JavaScript <laughs> to, to do that. So anyway, um, I feel like I, I've gone on, gone on this rant. Um, did 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 we want to spend any time talking about MD specs before we move on to radio? I I'm thinking maybe maybe we do a, a another podcast episode on on just MD specs. And okay. We yeah. Head into radio and and hugging face maybe. Yes. Uh, what is sounds all right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> what is hugging face? Hugging face is a company that is building a basically we build libraries, platforms, and services to make AI as accessible as possible. The context around this is, you know, and sometimes when people who aren't familiar with the AI ecosystems hear this, they're like, you know, what's the big deal? But like, it's genuinely the Wild West out there. You know, there's a lot of code that gets, I mean, a lot of code isn't released for some kind of research. A lot of code is, you know, very difficult to make use of to get to work yourself. So having a kind of a consistent set of libraries and, and platform where we can, you know, it's easy to use state-of-the-art machine learning models is a bit of a game changer. So the core, I guess, the heart of Hugging Face is the Transformers library. That's kind of what everything is built on top of. And it's a, you know, a consistent Transformers is an architecture in machine learning, but it's also a, a library that you can use. And we make available lots and lots of state-of-the-art models that you can use relatively easily. And we've got a bunch of, you know, we've got a whole, you know, we're building an ecosystem, so it's not everything kind of works together. We've got a Git host, we've got a hub where you can host your models and your data sets and even your little kind of Python apps. That's our spaces, um, which we'll come to shortly. But also, you know, we've got a, a series of li libraries. Um, we've even got APIs where you can easily, you know, models that are hosted on the hub can easily deploy, be deployed to an API and you can then just like, make predictions using an API API instead of uh, needing to kind of write your own code. So it's a, it started off as just, just focused on NLP, but now it's just, it's pretty much anything goes. NLP being uh, natural language uh, processing programming? Yeah, not neuro linguistic programming. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> which I have my friends friend. also into that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly consists of uh, looking at yourself in the mirror and telling yourself that you, you have confidence today. You love you. <laughs> yeah. Very sad. Um, yeah. Uh, no, but actually, like one of, my, one of my smartest friends does that and like it works. So I, I'm actually very 
very hesitant to be skeptical about it because uh, <laughs> that's kind of what we were saying before we started recording. We're going to have smiles on our faces and be happy. <laughs> we just yes. made ourselves happy. Yeah. And I, I, I think it worked. <laughs> you have to manifest. One analogy that I've heard is hugging faces, GitHub for machine learning. Didn't make sense to me two years ago. Makes a little bit more sense to me today. It seems like that is the way that, for example, stable diffusion dif uh, distributes model weights. And like, basically, like, is it just GitHub on steroids? Like, what, what is, what, like, what does Hugging Face do differently that GitHub doesn't do? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so I guess the biggest thing is um, kind of Git LFS is free. So yeah. when you're dealing with, uh, which it isn't on, on GitHub for reference. Um, so when you're dealing with like, you know, models are huge, checkpoints are huge, you know, these things are very large. So you need, you need some large file storage and that could get very expensive on GitHub, whereas that's, that's free on Hugging Face. So it is a Git host and that's our kind of, in terms of the public facing kind of part of uh, Hugging Face from a product point of view, it looks like it's just like a Git host and it's definitely very good for hosting your, um, your models and your data sets. But there's a bunch of kind of, I think one thing that Hugging Face does does differently is, for example, you can get you can buy compute. You know, you can't buy compute from um, from GitHub. GitHub isn't like a way to host your code. I mean, it's very general purpose. So obviously, it can't it can't be. But because we're focused on machine learning, it's like if you need compute, for example, on whether that's we've got inference APIs, so more kind of production focused. You could um, upload a model to an inference API and use one of our APIs to run your productions. But we've also got this idea of spaces, which is a way you could think of it like, you know, like GitHub pages or something like that, except it's, you know, it's an, it's an actual like Python app with um, a server running behind it. And you can, if you need a larger GPU, then you can, you can buy a larger GPU. If you need an A100 for your predictions, then you can buy that um, directly from, you know, you can just upgrade your space in the GUI. And then you can Potentially, you could use that as an API if you wanted to. But you know, we would encourage for production use cases going to one of our dedicated production services. It's going to be more more performance. But I think that's the you know we have a set of because we're focused on a it's a pretty broad vertical, but it's a vertical machine learning that yes, it's good for hosting, but yes, it's also good for production APIs. It's also good for prototyping apps with spaces. We've also got the libraries that kind of the power all that that you can also use as well. So it's more of a I would say it's more of a kind of a rounded kind of solution to the to a kind of a a, a kind of vertical. It's just a very very wide one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, I, I got nothing. That that so explains it so much better to me. I was I was so confused about what it does, but like having like the <laughs> the GitHub face for like the models, and then you have the spaces to actually host the thing that you need. Right, you have. Physical servers, are those like located, are they more like a CDN or are they located in specific areas? The, they are in specific areas. The AW, I think it's, everything's just AWS. Are they built on AWS? Okay. Yeah, as far as well, gotcha. yeah. So the spaces things are kind of, like I say, they're kind of, more, you're more likely to hit the limits of what those resources mm -hmm. give you, but we've got more production focused um, products as well. Gotcha. Uh, I wanted to give a little bit of, con oh, okay. Uh, do you need me to stop now or? Go on, go on. I'll, I'll do it after. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. uh, I wanted to give a little bit of context. Uh, so A100s are the, it looks like they're the, the chip of choice for machine learning. 
people are measuring their AI capacity by the amount of A100s they're stockpiling. Like literally, there's a chart out there going like number like number A100s per company, and and you know the people that have more win. Um, and that's a that's, <laughs> it's it's kind of like a nuclear arms race to me, which is uh, which is pretty cool. But like one of the most magical experiences for me, like when I started looking at Hugging Face differently compared to GitHub, was you know you host Gradio UIs on uh, on Hugging Face uh, on Spaces, and people can just run the models for free, which is not my normal experience for for machine learning. Like you normally have to download it somewhere and run it yourself, right? Like doing this for free is must cost them a lot. Yeah, it's not it's not cheap, but you know, in terms of making AI as accessible as possible, you know, making for example, making papers reproducible, which at the minute is like really, you know, we've just got some code. It's like, like just trust us. Yeah, we yeah. got some results. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, encouraging people to build, you know, a radio demo for the paper, which you know we've had a lot of success with, is you know, game changing. So like for us, it's the important thing is to is to build this ecosystem is to make sure people are using spaces. And you're right, you know, it's obviously it's a whole machine. It's a dedicated machine for these kind of these spaces apps. They don't they don't necessarily have uh, GPUs. So like the GPUs are, you know, upgrades that you can pay for. We also have community grants that people can apply for. So if they've got an interesting kind of space that we think people, you know, the world should be using, they can apply for a CPU grant and we can we can award those temporarily as well. So, you know, it's a it's a, certainly a cost, but it's a measured one in terms of, you know, making machine learning as accessible as possible, whether that's making it easier for researchers and ML engineers, or whether that's kind of opening the door to software engineers, which is obviously the biggest part of kind of tech is software engineers who, you know, maybe have some familiarity with machine learning, they know what it is, maybe they don't know how they would integrate it into the you know, their, their workflows and how they would use it. But these kind of radio demos, for example, is a good way to, you know, build a proof of concept to, you know, to show to stakeholders to get some um, buy-in so that they can maybe actually invest some serious funds into that. Uh, is is uh, A100 a, a the Bitcoin miner of AI or is it the, the graphics card of AI? Are people going to be be you know building all this this hardware and then it goes obsolete and you have to get the latest hardware because you want to do some specific task. It's the probably the kind of reference GPU of choice at the minute. Um, there's there are cheaper ones. Um, there are I think more expensive ones. Um, you know there's innovations in hardware all the time, especially for uh, machine learning, and it will obviously there will be a, a newer, shinier uh, version in twelve months. Before we continue the conversation, here's a word from our sponsor again. Vercel is the platform for front-end developers, providing the speed and reliability innovators need to create at the moment of inspiration. Founded by the creators of Next.js, Vercel has zero configuration support for 35-plus front-end frameworks, including SvelteKit. We enable the world's largest brands like Under Armour, eBay, and Nintendo to iterate faster and create quality software. Try out Vercel today to experience the easiest way to use Svelte. So we talked about Hugging Face then and A100s and all that cool stuff, but where does this all tie into Svelte? What does this have to do with Svelte? Um, nothing at all, um, in honesty. <laughs> but, so, end of conversation. No, <laughs> Svelte is used across all of Hugging Face. So 
any pretty like pretty much a lot of what is kind of public facing almost everything is is kind of written in svelte so the hub is all svelte it's a relatively custom setup we've got a couple of svelte kit apps so we've got our inference endpoints kind of landing page is a svelte kit app we've got a hugging face store go buy our merch <laughs> that's a uh, that's, that's a svelte kit app gradio that i work on which is a library which I'll, I guess we'll, I'll explain that in more detail in a moment, is also all of the front end is written in Svelte. So pretty much everything uses Svelte, but obviously, you know, machine learning itself requires no UI. There is no necessarily no Svelte involvement. There does seem to be a trend of, um, there seems to be a trend I've noticed over the past 12, 18 months that Web3 and AI companies use, use Svelte. I don't know why that is. I don't like, they just like new yeah. things, so they're just using the shiniest thing but <laughs> it's it's an interesting one because when i first started off in web3 th there was no one was using anything the only thing that was available was the ethereum sdk and it was written in this dodgy javascript that was shoved through browserify and it barely worked at all it was terrible but i started building things called truffle boxes in svelte uh and so there were there was a few ways to build like a, a blockchain app and one of them was using svelte and it was one of probably five ways to do it at the time but then suddenly when I sort of existed Web3 in 2017 or so, React took over and React became the de facto way to build, well, you know, anything but also Web3 apps. So it's interesting now that the, the, the tides turned again and, it, and Svelte's become a good way to build them. And I think it's probably the kind of company, it's, it's modern, it, it's faster in my mind than, than React. And I think it's also just kind of, you know, it, it feels like it's... I don't know. A modern, a modern company, I think, will will look at Svelte as a good option for getting a front end up and running. I know yeah, that. I mean, it's it's in, easy in the in the AI kind of like sector. I know that Cohere are using Svelte. Um, Cohere are another kind of AI startup, more more kind of following the kind of open AI model. I think where they're kind of closed source models with APIs to um, to use them. But they're using Svelte, and they donated like ten thousand dollars to the Open Collective about six months ago. So, thanks. <laughs> Um, but and who you as well are using Svelte. So. There was a, a protocol I was quite involved with um, back in the day called Melon Protocol, and it was uh, by two two people. And one interesting, the, the reason it stuck in my mind is because the lady was called Mona Elisa, one of the ones who owned it. And I thought that's the best name I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, and so, <laughs> but the, but the, but the guy, and unfortunately I've forgotten his name. Sorry, but um, he he sort of when I was uh, early days as a maintainer on Svelte. He appeared in the Discord, um, and he was rebuilding Melon Protocol's website in Svelte, and I was like, well, that's interesting. That's sort of unexpected. Um, also, you know, the guy designed the protocol also writing the front end, but there you go. Just a tidbit, that one. I want to offer some uh, thoughts on this, like why uh, people are using, or, or just like investing in UI. Like, essentially, um, you know, uh, both machine learning and, and Web3, there, there are a bunch of opaque APIs that are not super usable to the general population. Like the, everyone's interested in mass consumer usage of that. And for that, you need user interfaces. Um, and I, I very much think like, you know, there's there's a movement in, in machine learning of like, you, you we, there's a lot of research being done on foundational models, but it's not super accessible. Uh, stable diffusion itself is not super accessible. You kind of have to build the UI around it. And uh, that's that's kind of what uh, people are are Investing in there, I think that's the opportunity for front-end developers to get involved with the AI as well, to, um, to, to essentially reinterpret it 
uh, for people, for regular people to to actually use, uh, make use of this stuff. Um, and um, you know, I'll, t- I'll point out two more things, which is uh, there's a a lot of these are Python ecosystem things. Um, so. Uh, uh, Gradio itself was an acquisition. Uh, it was a startup independently and then was acquired into Hugging Face. Um, and Streamlit is another one um, that was acquired by Snowflake for $800 million. And these are basically Python to UI interfaces um, where you, you like people just write Python and a UI is generated. Uh, and that's kind of the context, which is like, I know Python, I have my machine learning thing or my data thing or whatever my thing is. Um, and I And I want to make a user interface without being a UI expert. Um, and essentially what Gradio is, uh, from my point of view, is um, it's a bunch of Svelte experts uh, creating components that are accessible in Python. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's Python. Uh, you know, Python people want to write Python. So, <laughs> you know, the whole JavaScript ecosystem is totally inaccessible to those people. So uh, Streamlight and Gradio are two different Two different approaches. There are differences. There are things they're good at, things that they're not as good at. Um, Ooh, do you have opinion? I would love to know what, what's the similarities and differences. Um, I, they're getting more and more similar. I'll say that much. Um, I mean, the big difference is that Streamlit has its own custom interpreter, so which kind of allows for this very, very kind of clean line by line um, kind of. You know, you can build up a UI kind of line by line. It has a, it's very kind of intuitive. But the way they do that is with a is with a custom interpreter. We have a and Gradio. We have a goal that we need to run in like Google Colab. We want to be able to run anywhere without you know being be, basically being more portable. So we want to kind of stay as a you know this is kind of very kind of interestingly the kind of React Svelte kind of. You know, one of the old arguments was, you know, this kind of compiler is this really heavy abstraction. It's basically, you know, Svelte isn't a, a library, it's a language, which is kind of, you know, arguably true. And and it's kind of a similar sort of thing where Streamlit to degree is its own is its own language. It has its own semantics outside of Python, whereas Gradio is just a just a plain kind of Python script that you can run in any context. But obviously the mechanics of the way they work, this will probably change over time. For, like over the past kind of nine months, Gradio has become more similar to Streamlit. Gradio used to be just this simple, you know, here are your input components that, that are going to pass some data to a predict function. And here are the output components that, you know, the output of that predict function, you know, function is going to take those outputs and display them. Whereas now you can build more complex UIs as we've added more APIs. So kind of becoming more similar uh, to Streamlit. But the way in which they run is, at the minute, like Streamlit kind of runs top to bottom. So it kind of reruns when you change things pretty much completely. You can cache some things, and it, and it knows when things haven't changed, so it can kind of optimize. Um, but fundamentally, that's kind of how it works. It kind of, kind of runs top to bottom with some kind of caching, memoization sort of tricks. I think that will... You know, they've published a roadmap recently that's really interesting, and that will change. Um, Gradio is a bit more kind of selective, and you can say, I, I only want these kind of things to update when this predict function runs. But you've got to kind of manually define those dependencies. That's something we are also hoping to, you know, improve in a future version as well. So they are kind of getting more and more similar. But that whole custom interpreter, you know, just pure Python remains true and probably will remain true. Um, for both of those tools. 
interesting uh, that the rendering philosophy matches uh, React versus Svelte, you know, rendering top to bottom versus <laughs> partial updates. Mm. Um, cool. <laughs> so what what are some some cool uh like i guess gradio apps is how what would you call them yeah, yeah apps i think the most popular ones um so what is now crayon was Dali mini and that was kind of probably the most popular even to this day even with stable diffusion kind of taking over the world Dali mini was on a different level um we were getting like 50 million generations a day um the kind of the mass usage of Dali Mini was was absurd, you know, probably kind of at, you know, machine learning genuinely at scale, like in ways that, you know, only certain organizations have had to do before. So that was definitely huge. That is now kind of crayon. It's like a different, its own, its own product now, and that's no longer using kind of Gradio um, and spaces. But that was the big one that would kind of like was very, very popular. And that was everywhere on Twitter. And that had the unique kind of element of People who knew nothing about machine learning, people who knew nothing about tech were having fun and playing with machine learning kind of like at, on on mass for maybe the first time in a long time. So that was huge. I guess we could kind of explain what the Dolly Mini actually is. It's it's like a image generation tool, right? Yes. These are all text. These have become very, very popular. I think partly because they work very well on Twitter. They're text to image generation model. So you give it a description and the AI will generate an image based on that. It will often generate like a selection of images based on that. And there's a there's a really great um, Twitter account like Weird Dali Mini, which kind of posts really strange generations. And Dali Mini kind of lended itself well to this because it was kind of it's quite stylized. It had a very specific look to it. So it often came out with some very bizarre uh, images. Stable Diffusion does as well, but Stable Diffusion is incredibly realistic. So it's in some ways, it's kind of <laughs> has less novelty um, effect than than Dali Mini. Yeah, you, you want different art styles. Um, one, one thing, yeah. So I, I linked. I, I do. I have actually been following uh, Weird Dali Generations, the Twitter account, because it's so it's funny. Um, there's there's often a little bit of a social message involved, uh, and I just saw that they reached a million followers, which is in, absurd to me. It's just uh, uh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So w w one thing I wanted to be very clear about was was Crayon or Mi uh, Dolly Mini created by Hugging Face or like a third party, and you were just the host of it. Yep, third party. Um, we collaborated with Boris uh, Daima, who and the folks that were building it, and we want like it, it was you know open source. You know, there was a lot of kind of. <laughs> I don't know. It feels like sometimes this stuff is made open source almost as a response to OpenAI's very aggressively closed source nature, which has kind of changed recently. <laughs> open source <Closed> AI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an ironic <laughs> thing. But um, you know, so it was this kind of open source model, and we collaborated with the folks that built that model. It's not an internal hugging face tool in the same way that Stable Diffusion. Again, the initial demos kind of that were, were hosted and the models were hosted on Hugging Face, but that's just a collaboration with another organization um, as well. So it was, and, and, and then kind of Boris and the team wanted to take, you know, to try and build a product around Dali Mini. So they kind of created Crayon, which is what is now Dali Mini. Yeah. And, you know, that became self-hosted and they did their own UI and they did their own thing. Uh, and for, for those listening, Crayon is, uh, well, the, re the regular word Crayon with the AI in it. So 
C R A I Y O N. Yeah, cry, um, crayon. Crayon. Uh, well, I, I just like 50 million generations. That's a lot of money. And I'm just like, I'm just trying to really go like, all right, who paid for that? <laughs> like, like I, I know there's a queue. Yeah, so I don't, I, I don't, I don't know the details on this. We definitely, there was. I'm just asking this, just because, like, you know, that's that's a really good way to host things, and I'm like, how, what's the limit on this? You know, <laughs> like, like. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dali Mini was like a pretty custom setup. So, um, so typically, when you create a Gradio app, it like it spawns a, you know, a fast API API for you, and it gets like, you know, it gets kind of. Um, built into this Docker container and so on and so forth. But you can also, if you want to, you can call, you know, external APIs and stuff if you're hosting elsewhere. And that was the situation with Dali Mini. It had its own custom backend and there was, you know, I think various, I don't know if like we sponsored that or only we sponsored that or if other people were also sponsoring that as well. But there was definitely a bunch of, um, the backend was like a totally custom backend and the Gradio app was actually a static app essentially hosted on on spaces that called out to this api that had its own queue and and you know it did like a bunch of batching and stuff on its own so we didn't actually enable our queue because then it would have meant that they couldn't use their queue so they had their own queue it was its own kind of custom set of infrastructure that we provided we definitely provided a lot of support um around that but in terms of who actually foot the bill i'm not 100 (laughs) percent Yeah, I don't mean to pry. I'm just like, this This might be one of, like, I would love, love to make something like that. And I, I just, I have no idea how much effort or money it takes to, to run something like that. You know, that's, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. But it's so fun. It, it really is so fun. Um, so, yeah. Any other kind of applications that you want to shout out that are fun to, to play around with? Or like, how do you yeah, get started I think with we, Gradio? Right. Yeah, I think. The, uh, I mean, you can go and like browse our spaces. So if you go to huggingface.co uh, slash spaces, you can actually go and browse spaces. We have like lists of trending spaces. So if you wanted to explore the different kinds of things that people are doing, then you can go and take a look at that. I think like the most popular one at the minute is is obviously stable diffusion web UI. So this is a, a pretty complex web UI around stable, around stable diffusion, which is again, another text to image generation model very, very kind of like high quality image generations. And the, the the web UI allows you to kind of tweak the parameters. It's a pretty complex model. You can make lots of kind of like tweaks and things. Um, and that has become very, very kind of popular. Um, you could, you know, you can create a Google Colab and kind of fork and take a look at that. You can run it locally. And what's interesting about stable diffusion now is, of course, people have started to fine tune, you know, with, uh, with Dreambooth. So they've started to kind of, Make their own kind of, uh, you know, you can you can uh, fine tune on a relatively small set of uh, data to create like different kind of styles and stuff. And they've become, you know, I, I guess they've kind of kind of viral in a, in a in a much smaller kind of sense. They're a bit more specialist. It's a little bit more like technical to to do that. But that's been an interesting kind of um, offshoot. And and you know, interesting, Sean, you were talking earlier about community and an ecosystem again like entire mini communities are built up around these things and they're setting up their own kind of sites to share all of the different models that they've generated so people can play around with them you know everyone's frightened is disney going to sue me because i've trained my model on a lot of disney images and stuff all those kind of questions start opening up but um but yeah stable diffusion is kind of 
it kind of it, it became popular, but it's it's what's been impressive is how people have kind of continued to play with it, continued to kind of find new and interesting use cases, and it's even today it's still pretty constant. It's still pretty popular with people using it, and that's definitely worth uh, checking out if you like image generation models. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so the the perspective I would give there is, uh, you said it was it was less popular, but. I'm not sure about that because that's the that's uh, the the dream booth fine tuning is the is where I saw it crossover on YouTube um, because people are, like, and the way that I'll frame this is people are most interested in themselves and so there's a qualitative difference between you being able to type any text and then it generates any image and you being able to type any text and it puts you in that image uh, puts your friend puts your loved one puts your pet whatever it is. Right, like people are very interested in themselves, and 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 uh, and th those. Uh, I think the the one that the video that went viral was was from Corridor Digital, where they like told a story with their coworkers, um, and inserted themselves in that story, uh, and it just be became that much more interesting, just because that's hey, that's a face I work with every single day, um, and you know some of the more interesting productized businesses would be Avatar AI, uh, which is the same thing, and and so like the, what I would qualify there is like there's these foundational models like stable diffusion. Um, Fine-tuning is kind of that last mile thing that people add on on top of that um, that requires a lot of UI work um, and, and, uh, and, yes, additional uh, machine learning training, but like, that actually makes it more useful to the end user who is ultimately interested in their use case and their, their own specific uh, constraints and needs. So, Well, uh, I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're uh, ending off on, on the Gradio thing, um, I wanted to ask, like, uh, I, think, I think just the general sense of, like, UI generators or like not many people work on this, essentially what you're working on, um, which is you're interpreting some, you know, intention of, of, a, of a developer and then creating in a sort of a low code fashion UI, right? Um, and I think that's a very interesting and rare use case of front end frameworks that you probably stretch felt in, in some interesting ways. And I thought that there might be an opportunity to comment on some lesser known APIs that uh, provide you a lot of value that people may not know about. Yeah, I think um, so. At, at a very high level, you can kind of see a, kind of something like Gradio as it's a framework fundamentally. And we often talk about this that you know, you know, when we're looking to looking for new people, we're more interested in people that got experience building frameworks than experience in in machine learning because you know, Gradio is very much positioned as a you know make make web UIs for your machine learning kind of models, but you can build anything. You can build like normal web apps like with it. Um, and the big difference is instead of like the DOM being our primitive, like it is in Svelte or React, like we have these kind of components that are our primitives. So you can't render, you know, this H1 or that, you know, paragraph tag, you can render our image component, which itself is a, is a very, very complex thing. So most of our work, especially in the front end is you know, we spend a lot of time with relatively low level APIs, maybe with Canvas APIs, with audio APIs, with video APIs, with, you know, who knows in the future with, you know, WebGL is, is something that we'll be utilizing in the future as well. So a lot of our work is spent just doing kind of web API stuff. In terms of the Svelte, it's, uh, it can get a bit tricky sometimes to process all of this, to take this essentially this, the way it works in Gradio is we have a configuration that gets generated by the Python backend and gets passed down to the front end and that, you know, you can, you want to see it as like almost a virtual DOM representation or a virtual component representation, then you can, it's a, it's a tree of components that Svelte will then render. And I mean, you know, dynamic components, uh, Svelte colon component is your friend in this That's case. Gonna, so it's yeah. 
rendering all these components. And but I think the difficult thing is is having a, an architecture that supports kind of managing all of that state. So there's all of this states that you have for your components, and that might be props that are being set at the very kind of like high level that you need to pass down. But then those props can potentially change throughout the life cycle of the application, and you need to ensure that your kind of conf config reflects that. You need to be able to, you know, if you were to show and hide something, can you rehydrate with the same state? But you also kind of start to face challenges where because we're kind of because the 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 kind of the code, you know, all of our kind of event handlers, what would be an event handler in Svelte, like that's written in Python and that that involves a kind of like a server round trip to a degree. So we have, for example, events on we have certain like change events on on certain components. So if the value changes, that event is triggered and we have a handler for that. And that's a function written in Python. So you can almost see this it's a little bit like, it doesn't work in the same way, at least not at the minute, as Elixir live I view, it, but it's yeah. that same kind of, you know, cycle. We do use we do use WebSockets and stuff for various reasons, um, and maybe we'll go more granular with updates in the way that kind of live view does in the future, but it's kind of that process where this manage some state or something up here, do some, make some changes, you want to pass that down to a component, and that's, you know, request response cycle. So you do have a problem, though, when say you've got some internal state for a component, if you're going to dismount and remount that component, you're going to lose the internal representation of state, which you might need to say, if you're working with Canvas, you might want to send just images up to your API to do something with, to you know, run a prediction on. But internally, you might have like a bunch of paths. You might have some you know, mathematical representations of like vectors that you're drawing onto a canvas and stuff. And you could potentially lose all of that internal state. So having a way to serialize both the state that your API cares about and the state that your front end cares about is you know, really important. And we've had issues in the past where maybe we were, you know, our, our kind of like state mechanisms were a little bit, you know, too naive. And in some ways they still are, and they need to be kind of improved as you want to do more with the framework. And maybe it's performance optimization. So you're only kind of sending partial updates and stuff. Maybe it is the idea of mounting and dismounting, but it means you need to think kind of carefully about how your, how your kind of front end and your back end are talking to one another, because we have this hard requirement that users write Python and you know, they, they, there are escape hatches for JavaScript, but that means anything that you potentially want to do, hiding and showing a button, you should be able to do that in Python. Um, so that's, you know, it poses interesting challenges when you need to work, kind of try and work across languages. And it also, you know, introduces UX challenges, like if we want people to be able to show and hide a button in Python, and that involves a server round trip, is that going to deliver the performance that we need? Are there some new APIs we can add to support this use case, some shorthands that can, you know, make the UX, you know, faster. So it's, it definitely has a number of challenges that you just don't, you know, you don't have to face in, and, and a lot of hard constraints that you simply don't have to face in, um, you know, building a, a typical product, for example. Yeah. Cool. It's a great explanation. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, and you're still hiring, right? Yeah, we are hiring. So we are looking for a front-end uh, engineer. So um, it's advertised on our Hugging Face on the Hugging Face website as a front-end engineer, fully remote. The whole company's remote, um, and you know we're looking for someone. You know, a Svelte person would be good, but really someone who really understands. You know, has some experience with those core web APIs I was talking about. Someone who's comfortable 
on MDN and implementing things at a relatively low level um, is, is ideally what we're looking for. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Um, all right, so I think uh, I think that's it for uh, for uh, all of the topics, unless you have something else that you want to add. Uh, well, I was going to mention Svelkit. You have some Svelkit apps. For those listening and who are not on Twitter, there are eight issues left, apparently, on Svelkit 1.0's roadmap, which means maybe soon. We don't know. But um, I, I just wanted to leave some opportunity for people to comment on the maturity of Svelkit and how people are excited about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll be getting Svelkit pretty soon. I feel, I feel like it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Feel it. And All right. <laughs> We're getting the so, side eye. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of silence from the two maintainers on this call. <laughs> I mean, definitely I think, in the, the last stretch, right? Like we're in yeah. the, we're feeling kind of positive. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's still a lot to do. You know, we've got a very, you know, we feel very strongly that the other stuff, the docs and the tutorials and all of that sort of stuff, needs to be there. Um, when we release, like it's not 1.0 without like a really great kind of, whether it's a, you know, adoption story, whether it's kind of how you integrate, how you deploy, you know, the whole end to end, um, you know, the tutorials and all of that sort of stuff needs to be there partly because, you know, you're nothing without your documentation, but also partly because you only get one chance to launch. And if you screw it up, you don't get another chance, especially with some the hype that's been building around SvelteKit for the past Oh, I don't even know how long it's been. Um, so we two years probably. Sure that it's yeah, it's been years, like literally been years. Um, but we need to make sure that everything's like in the right place when we launch. So we're taking care of that. So there's no no time scale, but it's not uh, things are going well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a tease! And uh, all right, so. I'm seeing one issue being merged right now. So hopefully, it'll be seven by the end of this podcast. Oh, exciting! <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's. Uh, Let's uh, move on to the uh, the fun part of the episodes. No, I'm just kidding. Unpopular opinions. Do you guys have any? Let's hear. Oh, now. we didn't tell Penguin to prepare one, but uh, we'll we'll leave him to the end. But uh, Brittany, you want to go first? Kevin ruined mine. <laughs> no, mine was just that uh, Svelte will stay on top of React based on the uh, npm surveys, like or download numbers that were. I, right. I was just. Giving people shit, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sean Sean stole mine. I mean, didn't know it was mine to be fair. And then he changed it, and it's even worse now because, like, I have another one. <laughs> no, go for Let's it. Hear it. Sean, do you want to? Do you want to go with? Because you, you said it first, anyway. Do you want to do, go with your original one as well? Um. Well, no. I, I like so. Uh, I think last last week we had this conversation about you know is Twitter dying or or, or uh, you know, or will it last? Um, and I think my my evolves, uh, you know, my, my my thoughts over the past week have been: Twitter, as you knew it, is already gone. Um, and primarily, you know, there, there's just a lot of discussion about like how Twitter will run, like you know, the uptime, and downtime. But like just the the community in nature of Twitter uh, is is it seems to be uh, permanently gone. And and like let, let's just say like you know. Um, you know the ownership changes again, um, and it, and it goes back to normal. Uh, the, I think just the illusion that um, this is a space that you can invest in permanently um, is is gone now, um, and like people are definitely diversifying. And I think uh, 
you know, definitely Mastodon usage is growing, uh, is picking up. Um, I've tried it out recently. It, it seems to be more developed than, than I thought. Um, and in particular, I think the data science uh, and developer community are converging on two servers, um, sigmoid.social. I think, uh, uh, Penguin, you're, you're, you're there on sigmoid. Uh, I just created an account as well. Um, and then the, the general tech community, I think, is on Hachiderm. Um, or hackyderm, um, and I, I think I think that's going to be it uh, going forward. There's there's just going to be diversification of tech community um, uh, from Twitter to Twitter and Mastodon, um, obviously with with uh, other existing like TikTok and LinkedIn, but like the text based ones. Um, people are definitely diversifying. Even as of last week, like I would have agreed with you, but after seeing like the movement. I feel like it's just a small percentage of people. Like it seems like my circle is kind of moving towards Mastodon, but I don't know if the bigger, greater like Twitter ecosystem of developers is really moving that much. It's 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 enough that like people are clicking like that backup button on Twitter, right? Like that just like that people, is the trust, yeah. the, the trust is gone. Um, you you just don't uh, you you don't default to believing that everything that you have on there will stay up, will be accessible at all times. You don't default to uh, believing that there, there will be decent moderation on, on the platform. Um, and you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't believe that the timeline will not be taken over by some main character energy that like, is completely distracting and irrelevant to uh, you know, the things that you actually want to spend time on. Um, so for that reason, I think there's just a number of people who are just permanently off Twitter. Um, there are a number of people who are, who are not permanently off Twitter, but like at least significantly diversified away and therefore uh you know as a content creator like that that matters as as someone who I, like i put a lot of my public thinking online for for me to search later on like it's, it's specifically for me um i i have to start thinking about like moving it somewhere else like i just it, i just yeah. cannot risk putting it on there anymore that's the conversations that we're having a lot too i'm on mastodon but like companies are starting to think about like coming to mastodon i'm like mastodon is not a place really for companies right now like I think they yeah. would get kicked off, basically. Well, so yeah. we should share all of our mastodons on the show notes too, just in case anybody's interested. Well, hang on. So Anthony's uh, Anthony's uh, against this. So you go ahead. Well, no. So uh, so I'm confused now because everyone's everyone's read out my unpopular opinion and I didn't even say it. But <laughs> um, and and that was the one that I took because Sean saw my first one and now Sean's first one that I had originally has now disappeared entirely. So I'm so confused. But I, I will respond. My only thing is, I just don't think Mastodon's usable for anyone outside of tech. Really, I think it's just, you know, people people have struggles. Uh, you know, the, the regular people have have struggles handling a username and password, and I don't think that Mastodon is really accessible for them. Um, so I just don't think it's going to. It might it might be where tech Twitter goes, but I think that'll be it. Which is probably what kind of what you're saying, really. I just don't think it's got the usability, and and. Even the name's not that appealing. It's you know some kind of random. I don't know what it relates to actually. What Mastodon is, but it's something sci-fi, I assume. And um, what? Yeah, no, no it's it's a it's a big elephant. <laughs> is it a big elephant? I think it's real. It's, it's yeah. Sounds sci-fi My elephant to me. Is not great. So yeah, sci-fi it's elephant. A, uh, so. <laughs> it was extinct, right? You know, they're I'll, extinct. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll to elephants. Know. Yeah, yeah. Out of the five Megazords, uh, Mastodon was the Black Ranger Megazord. <laughs> Wait, hang on a minute. And this is not sci-fi. Are we sure this is not sci-fi? No, no, based on dinosaurs. Meg Megazord. Are you sure? Megazord. I don't know. I think you're all trolling me. Share your other unpopular opinion because it needs well, to be said. 
Mishi <laughs> said, yeah, it's, it's kind of short, Sean and Mime, and it sounds like it's a few people's and it's not unpopular at all, but uh, MD spec should be part of Svelte. And oh, the only reason maybe. I sort of thought the other day is because, um, you know, setting up MD specs, you've got to follow some instructions and stick it in there. And I feel like I would actually want projects to be able to like add a folder, add a file with, let's say, MDS, you know, a, a more a more acceptable file name, Penguin. Um, MDS or something, <laughs> and then um, and it just and it just work out the box. And I think that would be it. something a language should have because I see a lot of people's real. Whenever one mentions JSX on Twitter, they they always in the same sentence uh, mention MDX. Right? It's almost like they go hand in hand. And we don't have um, JSX for obvious reasons, but I think if we had like MDS or whatever it's going to be, um, you know, as as part of the core, I think it's a huge win. I, Documentation I is important. That's... Absolutely true. And I, I think that would put us up a little bit on Astro too, because Astro has like that MDX support out of the box. And even though you can use felt in it, you can kind of use felt along with MDX, but it's, I think it should be integrated at this point. I don't, I don't think it needs to be a core package for that to be the case, you know, to have a really easy experience with Svelte, you know, it could easily be pre-configured, but I'm probably that... the barrier to it becoming core. <laughs> like I'm probably the only person who thinks that that shouldn't be the case. So that's interesting <laughs> that you, you think that it shouldn't be the case. Um, with spell add command, though, it is very easy to set up. So I guess I will say that it is very easy to add in and you don't necessarily need it to be, but it would be nice to have just access to it out of the box, I guess. Megasword commands you. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I make it required in, in all my templates. Um, I, I think it's just a better better way to author most pages by default. Uh, unless you really, really need to write HTML, then go go ahead and do that. But otherwise, uh, most people were better off uh, choosing MD specs. I, 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 I mean, I also configure it with a lot of like Remark plugins and stuff. So it, it's there will never be zero config MD specs. Um, it's just a question of how much config and how much setup. Uh, I, I wonder that too, like if we could get like actually a package to render the markdown built into it also, that would be nice. Ah, uh, okay. Like well, you uh, said, you use remark and stuff and like you have to add more configuration to it. That would be. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll go quickly on my one. Uh, so every, I think every developer needs to be AI literate. Um, I think this is not a fad. Um, I think everyone needs to know how to uh, leverage AI in, as part of their jobs because it will increasingly be part of uh, uh, knowledge work. And uh, yeah, that's that's the long and short of it. I, you know, I picked Copilot last time, um, but this is just more general. Like, play around with these things because um, you will be using more and more of them over the next ten years. Absolutely agree. Agree. Valid, and now I have something else to learn. <laughs> <laughs> There's always um, something else to learn, Brittany. Yeah. So, so I have. Uh, exactly. I, mean, I have a repo going. For, if you want to learn along with me, I have. I have a repo for prompt engineering, which is what people are calling. Let's let's just call it like uh, for 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 people who are unaware, the progression of software 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So 1.0 is us writing code manually. Software 2.0 is. Um, the data defining code from, from, from specific machine learning cases. Uh, 3.0 is using large foundational models and understanding how to in, in, in interface with it, um, but not training your own models. Um, so all of those are levels of AI uh, to which uh, I think the developer needs to under, understand because it, it, these, these are new forms of software. 3.0 is cryptography. Come on, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I think there's a space for Penguin if you have an un- unpopular opinion you want to share. I have, so le- leading off, kind of, I have two, just like as a riffing off some of the things that have been spoken. The first one is that if the destruction of Twitter, whatever happens, does lead to fragmentation of communities, that's probably, I think, a good thing. And it's one of the best things that could happen to the internet is, uh, is if these communities started to build up in a space that made sense for them rather than default into some generic platform that might not actually be the best environment for them to actually um, communicate. You know, maybe artists going back to a more art-specific platform, maybe engineers uh, and tech folk going to a platform that better facilitates communication about tech in whatever way that makes sense. And other celebrities can go to TikTok or, or something. Um, you know, where maybe platforms where rage is not the uh, most valuable currency uh, isn't a bad thing <laughs> for discourse online. Um, but... Yeah, and my second one is basically leading off what you've just said, Sean, is that I think that AI companies are not doing a very good job of reaching outside of the AI bubble, not reaching outside of existing ML ecosystems to software engineers and figuring paths for, and I think that's there's an element of like a meeting in the middle, like you say, software engineers need to do the work to understand um, what's available, what the ecosystem looks like, what the you know what the current state of the art is, and, and and you know what's happening. It moves incredibly quickly. You know, month by month, you don't know really what's going to be um, what's going to be going on. But on the same token, all of these AI ML companies building these tools and services and platforms need to do a better job of reaching out to software engineers, which is of course a colossal market that absolutely dwarfs the kind of like the ML ecosystem. There's still more software engineers than there are ML folk. And I think there needs to be more work to to reach out to those people, um, which is obviously conversations that we at Hugging Face have all the time, but I'm sure it's a conversation other AI companies and startups and stuff are having, but it, it has to happen. And whoever does the best job of that is gonna like win at the end of the day. If they can bring those people in early before they've you know become super literate in AI, and they will kind of like win out in the end. All right. Cool. On your first point, I just wanted to say the only thing that I worry about with that diversification is I do think it's good that communities are breaking up. I just wonder if it's going to make them kind of shallow and in their bubbles and not get outside viewpoints. And for politics, especially like that worries me that I, I guess it doesn't spread outside the bubble, but it worries me that people aren't seeing other people's viewpoints and things. That's a good point. All right. So I don't have one, uh, an unpopular opinion. Well, I have many, but not today. I don't have time. <laughs> pick. Um, yeah, picks. What do you guys have? Brittany? Uh, mine is just a TV show I've been binging, and I hate that it comes out once a week because it's so good. I want to actually binge it and just watch the whole thing. It's the periphery. Double agreed. And I... Uh, I just got the book, so I'm going to download it and put it on my Kindle and spoil the ending for myself because I need oh, to read there, the book now. There's a book? It's, I need to get that as well. book series, I think, yeah. Ooh. I know, Sorry. right? Yes. Yeah, it's, re- it's really nice. I, I, I've been binge-watching it as well. Uh, Anthony? All right. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get Kev to pronounce mine. Hergionar Papamar. That's the one. <laughs> So what's this, Anthony? It's a show from the 80s that I discovered, well, a film from the 80s where I was like a bunch of sketches together from the 80s. 
uh, from Sweden that uh, I discovered randomly on Netflix. It decided that it was the kind of thing I would like. It was to a good extent, right? To be fair, I think my dad would like it more. But yeah, it's it's basically like it's actually restored, and this this scared me a bit because we're now restoring uh, footage from the eighties. I mean, I, I was alive then. That's terrifying. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just a very, very strange, the guy seems obsessed with the telephone, which is even worse. Uh, very strange. It's, it's, a, it's like a, sticky. a collection of, uh, comedy sketch stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a film made out of a bunch of, a bunch of sketches that are very, very clearly defined actually. So it's, uh, it's not like a, a contiguous sort of, uh, contiguous sort of, uh, line, but, um, but yeah, it's very strange and I just entertained me, maybe, maybe laugh for a bit. So. I just thought I'd, I'd uh, write that down so maybe someone else could get exposed to it. <laughs> yeah, everyone should watch it. It's funny. It's funny. <laughs> Ever the uh, esoteric the, um, uh, picks. Yeah, sorry. It's definitely esoteric. As we said, the, the uh, one the one sketch that actually was was really properly cracked me up was the the last one in the, in that in that film. So if you if you decide it's not for you and skip the rest, you should watch the last the last uh, sketch where they're uh, sat at a restaurant because I think that one was was great. Uh, if it's on YouTube, we can try and link it up. Well, mine, mine's very simple. One of the more interesting companies other than Hugging Face would be Runway ML. Um, I think they recently raised the Series B. And uh, it's essentially, it's a video AI toolkit. Um, if you're thinking about, I think, After Effects or um, you know some kind of other uh, video editing tool, they, they're basically applying the entire... Uh, every single advance in AI, uh, they they they'll have, they'll sort of reproduce it and, and offer it as a product, so you can sort of use to edit your videos. And their demos are super cool. So if you haven't seen this, um, I linked a video in the show notes. All right, uh, Penguin, do you have this? a pick, sir? A pick could uh, be a movie, could be a film, could be a, a something you enjoyed lately. Something something you like. The thing is, we we like to spring these on guests without any preparation whatsoever. Yes. I don't know why we like that. It's quite, it's quite bad. Okay. We we um, don't really like that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's a. I'm gonna just go with a really local choice, but you, there's a restaurant here in Amsterdam called Terra Zen, and it does this like Japanese kind of Caribbean fusion kind of food, and it's it's incredible. So if you're ever in Amsterdam, go to Terra Zen, and and eat at at, at this restaurant. That's my Ice. top pick. Swear you have told, or you're the second person that I've heard this from in like two weeks, and I've never been to Amsterdam. And this restaurant must be amazing because, like, I now need to go to Amsterdam just to go to this restaurant. It's really good. It was it was featured in a YouTube video a couple of weeks ago or something actually. So I think it's become more popular uh, recently. We even had to. It's like a tiny. It's down some random side street. It's a tiny little place, and we had to wait at like lunchtime to to get a table. So it's definitely worth a visit. Um, is it Japanese Rastafarian? It, it's kind of hard to place. It's very fusiony. Like uh, the menu is like pretty weird, but it's they do have like there is like there are like Japanese people who work there, or like I don't know if like one of the founders is is Japanese and one is is Rastafarian or from the Caribbean or something. It's uh, but it obviously it's a very strange kind of fusion, but it's like the food is is very very good. So. <laughs> It says, we serve Caribbean and Japanese soul food according to Rastafarian principles. What the hell is Rastafarian principles? I don't know. I, don't. I can't speak for that. I can't speak for that. <laughs> it's great. Okay. All right. I think, uh, I think that's, uh, that's it for, for this week. And uh, thanks for uh, joining us, Penguin. 
Uh, it was Thank a you for having coming. me. It's been a pleasure. Well, uh, see you in a bit when we uh, do an episode on MD Specs, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, Should be yeah. fun. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll uh, see you next week. All right. Bye. Later. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye.